My name is Mark Torres. I'm a labor attorney and author from New York, and I've got grit. Welcome to Grit Northwest. I'm Joe Cadwell, the writer, producer, and host of the show. On today's episode, we meet labor attorney, member of Teamsters Local 810 in New York City, and author Mark Torres. Mark's latest book titled Long Island Migrant Labor Camps, Dust for Blood, depicts the plight of thousands of poverty-stricken workers lured from the southern states of the U.S. to work in the agricultural fields of New York with the promise of good wages and decent housing. Once there, these workers fell victim to corrupt camp operators who utilized a systematic approach to cheat them of their pay and bore them in deadly slum-like conditions. Dust for Blood shines a harsh light on what atrocities greed combined with a blatant disrespect for human rights can produce. Mark's in-depth investigation into the sordid history of these camps begins in the 1940s during the massive labor shortage created by the Second World War. It chronicles decades of abuse and hardship for those who worked under these dour conditions, painstakingly providing the stoop labor that provided food for our nation. His book focuses on the peak years of the camps in the 1950s and 60s, and then tracks their steady decline into the 21st century. Packed with personal accounts of labor rights violations faced by an unrepresented demographic, his book serves as a cautionary tale for those who feel the need for an organized labor unions in this country have passed. Dust for Blood is published by the History Press and is available now for purchase in your favorite local bookstore or on Amazon. Be sure to check out the show notes after the episode for more details. And now, on to the show. I first met Mark through my affiliation with the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Notice has been put out to all us podcasters about the release of his newest book, and I thought it'd be a good tie-in for the show. Not knowing anything about the agricultural industry, labor camps, or even Long Island for that matter, I was pretty interested to interview Mark. I began our conversation by learning why he wanted to write Dust for Blood. Well, well first and foremost, it was shockingly a story that's never been told. Uh, you know, we're talking about 80, 90 miles from, from New York City. Um, heavy, high agricultural output, again, primarily on potatoes. And the story, you know, these areas are steeped in in history. They have a very deep history and a lot of um, uh, information going back to the early settlers. Yet here we are in the early part, mid mid part of the 20th century, and there was nothing written on it. So my first goal was to capture this history before it was lost forever. And and I'm proud, while I'm proud to say I've captured a great deal of it, I do know that a lot of it is lost forever. I reached out to the Suffolk County Department of Health, which is the government regulating body over these camps. And I was I received over a thousand documents from them, information requests. And a lot of those documents were probably from the 1980s um, forward. So a lot of the information prior to that was lost. And that that's sad because I was able to, through my research, review over 300 newspaper articles, read documentaries, interviews with those who may who were still surviving at the time, which are very few. And I do know there's, there must have been a lot more information that was lost forever. So while I'm proud to have captured this history, it is regrettable that, that, that a lot of it was lost forever, unfortunately. I asked Mark why he thought that was. Well, I, I believe largely it is an agricultural area. I do believe that uh, the constituents, uh, the farmers, the industry, is, it's not the positive type of history they would want to have shared. So I'm sure, you know, those in power would have preferred this not to be discussed. But the the data that I found certainly and certainly supports that it was not it was certainly a shameful legacy for an area that is now prosperous for its vineyards and 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 um, mansions and estates. 
but it does have this dark history. And and, and I, I, you know, the way I see it is if, it, if any part of history is lost, and really it's a, it's a loss to humanity, and that's that's a shame. So uh, as I grew into telling the story, my obligation grew to tell it more, and I'm glad to have uncovered what I was able to do. Well, now I knew his motivation for writing the book. I wanted to know what his research uncovered. Uh, in the 1940s, during World War II, there was a serious labor shortage. Uh, people going off to war, they had trouble filling it, filling that that void of, of workers. They tried everything from German POWs to, to Boy Scouts and any local help they can, but the shortage was never really filled. So the government initially sponsored uh, with local farmers several contracts with uh, the islands of Jamaica and Barbados, and they were able to bring in these workers from Jamaica and Barbados to work out east at four camps in 1943. Uh, shortly after the war, those, those contracts or government-sponsored contracts died out, but the, the work was still needed. And the, the farmers would then network with local and, um, crew leaders and, and contractors, if you will, to bring help. And they would rely upon Mexican workers, workers from Puerto Rico, and eventually, which turned primarily to black workers from the U.S. South, uh, primarily filled that, that large need for manpower. I told Mark that in preparing for our conversation, I'd come across a fascinating documentary called Harvest of Shame that aired on CBS the day after Thanksgiving in 1960. This documentary chronicled the plight of the agricultural workers across the U.S. Here it is. They follow the sun. Well, I don't know. It don't look like we'll ever get ahead. I guess we'll just have to keep going till we can find something better. A minister named Cassidy, who works with them, says... They are just as bad as the slaves. Only on name they are not a slave, but in the way they are treated, they are worse than slaves. And somebody has to make thousands of dollars out of his sweat. Is that a slave or not? They are the migrants, workers in the sweatshops of the soil, the harvest of shame. Sure, and, and, that, and that video, by, I mean, that's just an excellent video that captures on a national level from Florida up through Maine, and it does touch on California. There were three migrant streams at the time. The, the, you know, the West Coast, mostly California area. You think of um, the uh, the Midwest, which which covered a lot of a lot of the growth through, through Texas, and then you think of um, the East Coast from Florida to Maine. Uh, but I was able to dig deeper. I did find another rare documentary it's called "What Harvest for the Reaper." This was produced in 1969, and um, and that really shed light specifically on the Cutshaw Camp. It was the first and only true documentary. And not only did it shed light on the conditions, but it really did a great job of explaining the economic exploitation. I asked Mark to explain a little more about the economic exploitation and the practices that were used on these workers. So when a crew leader goes, say, uh, he contracts with the Long Island farmers, he drives down in his bus or whatever vehicle to, say, Arkansas, he would recruit workers. And their, their minimum wage at the time in Arkansas was, say, a dollar. This is 1969. And New York would generally a dollar thirty-five. So they would tell the workers, look, I can get you down 35 or more, great place to work. And of course, you know, they were escaping poverty in, in, in the poverty-stricken South. They would go for the ride. The minute they step on the bus, they're already indebted to that crew leader for both the ride there and the ride back, of course, right? Because it was seasonal. So now, they're, and, and from that point on throughout the whole time, they're chasing this perpetual debt. Um, you know, there are the costs that are open or hidden, right? Housing costs, food, transportation, uh, blanket fees, fuel charges, all these little things that are added in there. There's no written contract. It's basically at the whim of the of the crew leader. And if the crew leader really had it in for you, he would just say, you're not working today. And you would stay at the camp 
and now you're still incurring the debt, but you but you have no income. Um, the Bortons who did work, you know, farmers would come pick them up. They'd happen to pick up Chuck, or or sometimes they get a ride. They work on the farm on the farms, picking tomatoes and all the other things they do. And then they get back, and the and the crew leader, of course, would get a cut out of their pay. He would also get a cut from the farmers for for each day, each worker that he supplied, you know, work. So you know, the crew leader was making it in all different ways. And and again, and I'll give you an example. There was a huge mock-up on items. There was a popular wine, a cheap California wine called Twister at the time. At a local liquor store, it would sell for 61 cents. At the camp, it would be sold for over a dollar. So now you think, all right, just go to the go to the liquor store if you if you're so inclined and get it. Miles away. Um, and not only is it difficult to get it, if you did do it and the crew leader found out there would be repercussions. It would be punitive. He would frown upon that. Uh, another big problem was uh, there was no pay during work stoppages. So if a machine broke down for four hours out of the eight, they're not paid for the eight hours. They just paid for the four. So in essence, their their daily output is cut in half, but the, the, the expenses still incur. And this kept, kept perpetuating a, a, a vicious cycle of, of debt that is going to really take a toll on anybody, right? If you think about it. And with little recourse, there was little, you know, you're you know, a thousand miles away. You're not just going to go home quickly. Low wages, stranded far from home. I asked Mark what the living conditions were like for the workers there. The early camps in the 40s were, were, were probably best described as fair. Again, they were government sponsors, so kind of with all eyes on, on those camps. But the, over the years, they vastly deteriorated. And, and really, the, you could tell by the production. In, in, 1940, in 1943, the, the four camps I mentioned, by 1951, there were 28 camps. And then 1958, that number ballooned to 134 labor camps. Understanding the number of camps had increased, the government oversight had gone away. I wondered what the privatized camps were like. These facilities were horrendous. They, you know, terribly smelling, dirty, no water, um, really isolated areas. Families live in one room, usually in one bed. The single men live in the bull pit. Their space, one bunk. Four people live in this room in New Jersey. A family of six will move into this room. Nearby, a trotting raceway has new stables for horses. They cost $500,000. At Kutchog, New York, 300 migrants live in this camp owned and operated by the Potato Growers Association of Long Island. This is migrant housing, 90 miles from Times Square. Uh, not insulated, un no heat. And, you know, to, to supplement for that heat, a lot of the people who live there would rely upon space heaters and, and, and kerosene stoves. Unfortunately, there were fires and horrific deaths from that. In an 11-day span from 1959, eight people died, including young babies and adults. And that, you know, that's another large part of the story that I strive to tell is to kind of capture and name those who perished in this migratory labor system. And there were quite a few. I want to know if he had any stories that particularly stood out to him. Here's what he said. Um, you know, I could think of a 22-year-old mother named Dilcia Trent. Uh, we located there. She had three children, three very young children, all under the age of, of three at the time. It's a cold January. She goes to light the kerosene stove. 
The match, the wick of the match falls onto the, the rug, which is already saturated with kerosene. The place goes up. She, you know, she tries to stand up the kerosene here, uh, gets kerosene on herself and effectively became a human torch. She runs out of the apartment or the home, uh, trying to extinguish the flames in the, in the mud outside. Within seconds, the place went up, the babies perished, and she had died a week later. And, you know, th those are the kind of stories that that really hit home with me because I I wanted to share, you know, but for a few newspaper articles, you know, that the, their, her existence was lost forever. And I and I felt empowered to want to capture that and share it in the book. Seemed like it was a vicious cycle going on and it was allowed to perpetuate. So I asked Mark to elaborate a little bit further on it. And, and you know, these stories are just continuous, the, the wretched conditions. And a lot of it, um, sadly, is due to the economic exploitation because the crew leaders who would typically uh, black men or women from the South themselves would recruit these workers to come up to New York to stay for the season. And they would um, abuse them both physically, mentally. Uh, they would, you know, if they, if they sensed that the workers were susceptible to or prone to alcoholism, they would supply them with, with wine, cheap wine to keep them satisfied and quell any, any kind of uh, any animosity for not getting paid. Uh, there was cheat, cheating of pay. One, one woman had went to Riverhead Court to complain that she was getting Social Security taken out of her paycheck, but she didn't have a Social Security card. You know, that's the kind of rampant abuse that was going on. And the, the, from the farmer's perspective, they only dealt with the crew leaders. So they kind of outsourced their liability and responsibility to the workers and would just deal with the crew leader. And the crew leader would, you know, cut and turn and cheat and do everything he or she can to abuse and exploit these workers. They were really a terrible uh, economic uh, and physical and mental uh, toll on these workers. I was surprised at how bad things had devolved in such a prosperous nation as ours. And I asked if anyone had thought to stand up against these atrocities. Part of my book, the latter part certainly, covers uh, what I call better angels. There were some people and groups who really strived to fight against this system. I think of uh, Arthur Bryant, a, a pastor from Greenport for, for more than 10 years. He took it upon himself to go to Congress to testify in 1969 against the deplorable conditions of the camp. He, he received death threats for that. Um, uh, imagine a pillar of the community is going to get shunned for just trying to help these people. I think of um, Mary Chase Stone, a woman, uh, a very a very affluent woman, woman from the Boston area who left her really affluent lifestyle and relocated in Riverhead to help these people. She, she had offered training and courses to try to teach the workers uh, different uh, trades, carpentry, construction, so that they can escape the migrant stream and find more steady work. Um, you know, so, you know, there were some people in groups who really strive to help. In fact, in Mary Chase Stone's case, she filed several different uh, cases. I say they were court cases. They were filed, even though it was governed by the Department of Labor, there were local cases that were heard. And most of it was cheating out of pay, taxes, um, you know, other, other types of physical abuse. But any kind of justice was really few and far between. Most of the times, it was a horrendous system from top to bottom. I then shifted our focus to present day and if there remains any of these migrant camps on Long Island. And well, well, strangely enough, there are still some camps. Now, it's a lot different now. Uh, obviously, a large part is the there's more affordable, low-income housing available. Um, there is more oversight. And, and really, I kind of kind of wanted to capture this story from its peak period, from its inception to the peak period. So I chose 2000, the end of this, you know, the end of the, the decade, and wanted to leave it at that. But you know, the conditions aren't as, as as bad as they were, but as we all know, they still are. I mean, there's a lot of vineyards that works very intensive 
And, and you know, uh, I haven't done a deep dive into modern post-2000, but we, you know, just from, from early reports, you can just tell that it's not as ideal as, as you would like, especially farm workers across the country, particularly with COVID. They were getting decimated. There's little protections. The, the prior administration really wasn't inclined to help. We're hopeful that that some relief can come. But but generally, from really throughout this throughout this country, you know, the farm workers have had the, the, the roar end of the deal. They've been on the bottom, the last to get, and they continuously suffer, yet they provide food for our nation. It really is a sad spell with it. You know, I've never represented, I, you know, as a teamster, I represent truckers, warehousemen, skilled maintenance. I haven't had, haven't had, we don't have um, farm workers, but I tell you, I, I see them as, as our brother and sisters, like any other union member. And I really sympathize with their plight. We live anywhere, in a tent, under a shade tree, under a river bridge. We drink water out of a creek or anywhere we can get it. Five or six families drink out of one cup, a tin can or anything else. We're to blame. We tolerate that stuff. If we stick together and say we won't do it, we won't pick your chairs until you give us some uh, restrooms in the field for the ladies, some for the men, and some water fit to drink, we won't pick them. We get them. This reminded me of the quote that the only effective answer to organized greed is organized labor. And I asked Mark if he saw any parallels in other industries trying to organize today. Oh, certainly the themes are always recurring where industry, in this case, industry became more valuable than human life. And you see that now where, you know, hardworking men and women are trying to organize a union and companies come in and, and you know, they'll spend millions of dollars to keep unions out. Um, whether it's by, you know, bait and switch, they'll offer a, a slight raise to make them happy. And then, you know, then they can always change that down. So a lot of these themes are recurring and it's sad. Sad indeed. I finished our conversation on that note and thank Mark for taking the time to be on the show. The stories in his book of hardships and grief suffered by fellow Americans not that long ago and to some extent continue on today won't be easily forgotten. I believe his book serves as a poignant reminder that we must always be on guard as union members to fight back against attacks on our ability to bargain for livable wages, medical benefits for ourselves and our families, and safer working conditions. Large corporate interests and the politicians they control would happily do away with our unions, our prevailed wage mandates, and impose a national right-to-work agenda if left unchecked. To paraphrase Mark's words, these interests value industry more than human life and dignity. And as union carpenters, we can't let that happen. My guest today has been Mark Torres, author of the book, Long Island Migrant Labor Camps, Dust for Blood, which is available at your favorite local bookstore or online at Amazon.com. You can find out more about Mark and his work at MarkTorresAuthor.com or by visiting the show notes from this episode. New show for picking since the harvest has begun. We have barely made expenses, but we've set a going scale. Keep your hand upon the dollar and a dime for every...